The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want for me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kenyon. That song that we just played during the offertory, uh, Chase Waller, who sang it, also wrote that song. He's a stud. And it was his birthday yesterday. And he played a show on Friday night in Indianapolis, last night here in Chattanooga, and this morning at Restoration Southside. So I bet you Chase is taking a nap later today. Um, But it's such a good song. Thanks for sharing your gifts with us. We are taking a break in Mark after this week. We know people's summer schedules can be often in and out, and so we wanted to do something more topical. We're going to do the fruit of the Spirit and use text to walk alongside each one of those. Um, But it's the last week that we'll be together uh, in Mark Uh, until we come back in the fall. So we're going to take a a brief break. The reason that it's a poignant place to um, land is because this is the last story in Mark before Jesus enters Jerusalem. The last story in Mark before Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's an opportunity for us to see right near the end of Jesus' life what moves the heart of God, what moves the heart of God. So one more thing before we dive in. Do any of you have a family whistle that you grew up with? Like, not like a, a one that you hold, but like a sound? My, my be- yes, thank you. My best friends have one. They're, they're brothers, and they have this one that goes, I can't whistle in front of all of you. They go like this. And literally across the soccer field, they'll turn and look, and they know he's trying to get my attention. We had one growing up. And now I use it with my children. And so if we're in Publix or we're in a public place and they hear, it's really hard to whistle in front of people. (laughs) And they hear, they're like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Better go find dad. So the reason that I tell you a whistle can be used, it says, that person who I love and trust is calling me and gets your attention right away. And here in this text, we find what gets the attention of God right away. So let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? And thank you and I praise you for your Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would be powerfully at work by your Holy Spirit this morning. You have heavy hearts from what a broken world it is. We have heavy hearts from looking at our own sin, heavy hearts from bearing burdens. 
heavy hearts from the state of the world. We just ask that you would lift our chin. We're here because we, we want to have hope. We want to believe. We want to experience some sense, some calm that you are who you say you are. And that regardless of what's going on, that you will not fail to keep your promises. Would you remind us of that this morning? We need your help so much. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You ever been watching TV late at night and an infomercial comes on? And it's it'll start showing you sort of bloated, skinny, malformed bodies from starving countries all the way on the other side of the world. There'll be this sort of desperate voice talking about starvation and children and malnutrition. And then they'll turn and say, you know, for just a few cents a day, you could help nourish this person so far away. You've ever been in that moment where you're watching that and you just have to flip the channel? You can't look at it any longer? It's this sense, even though they tell you that for just a few cents a day, you can get involved, you can help so far away. It's this palpable sense of this is really broken, this is a really needy situation, and there's nothing I can do about it. Needy situation, and there's nothing I can do about it, so why should I sit here and have it shoved in my face? There's nothing I can do to help world hunger. There's nothing I can do to help this impoverished country. Need matched with powerlessness. And we just turn our heads. That's what's happening here. Bartimaeus would have been known to the people in the town. If you were blind in those days, you didn't have a job. You, you had to beg. And so you would have family or friends or anyone that was still left in your life take you to the city gates at the beginning of the day and leave you there. And you would beg Beg, hoping that people would have some pity on you, knowing that your condition wasn't going to improve. There was no reason for you to have hope, but just so that you could eat and live and survive, maybe people would have pity, and they would have known him. They would have gotten used to seeing his life and looking away, thinking, there's nothing ultimately I can do for this guy. I can't give him back his sight. I can't change things for him forever. It's just need and powerlessness to help him. And so people would just pass him by. That's the story that we're confronted from, confronted with this morning. Need and powerlessness until Jesus gets involved. Need and powerlessness until Jesus gets involved. Well, let's first look together at the desperate situation of Bartimaeus. This is from verse 46. This is this. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. This man is in desperation. Desperation. He's there begging for money. He can't hold down a job. No one's going to help him. 
And he sits in utter darkness. Utter darkness. And not only that, the help that he can get, he's crying out and people are telling him to be quiet. Telling him to be quiet. The reason that I point you out to this is his blindness. And the reason I think Mark puts this right before Jesus marches into Jerusalem is that blindness has actually been one of the themes of Mark. Do you remember that? Way back from when Jesus healed, sorry, fed the 4,000. When Jesus fed the 4,000, and then after they gather up all these baskets and they get into a boat, they forget to grab bread for themselves, and they think Jesus is frustrated at that. And Jesus says, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And just a few verses after that, he says, He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and his eyes were open and his sight was restored. And here, the disciples have just told the children to stay away from Jesus The rich young ruler, no, you can come. Come right up to us. You're powerful. Children are insignificant. They're needy. Keep them away. And then this blind man is crying out, and his disciples are quickly there to say, don't bother the teacher. Be quiet. You see, the great irony of the text is the blind man is the only one in the whole story who can actually see. And all the people that can see in the story are showing themselves to be blind. Blindness was common in this day because of illness, because of injury. But it was totally debilitating. You didn't have any prospects for things to get better. Every moment of a day, they live in constant awareness of their condition. I promise you, people in that time, blind, were not sitting around thinking, it's really not that bad. They live in glaring awareness of their condition. But what about us? The blind man lives glaringly aware of his condition, but what about us? We're usually glaringly aware of other people's needs. Oh, that person needs to change, or that person needs to get better. But we're not very good at being aware of our own needs. Are we needy? Are we desperate? We are so terrified of neediness because we're so terrified of what it says about us to be in need. Have you ever been to Publix and they say, oh, would you like me to help you to your car? If you're a dude and you're at Publix and they say, would you like me to help you to your car? What do you say? No, thanks. I've got this. You don't want to be like, yes, please. Please. And I would like to stand next to you as you load my car with my groceries. No. The need is there, but we don't don't embrace it. We don't like what that would say about us. The blind man sees the need and he knows it. He doesn't try to swat it away or temper it. Friends, what are the needs in your life? That feeling of, "I, I need help. 
I need help with my sin. I need help with my suffering. I need help for God to sustain me. I need help. That feeling is actually something that can help you. We're trying to numb away or outperform a feeling that can actually help you. One of my mentors is fond of saying, Joe Novenson, he's fond of saying, everyone thinks, excuse me, everyone thinks the feeling of faith is strength. When I have faith, I'll feel strong. And he says, but in reality, the feeling of faith is weakness. It's dependence. It's to stand in need and know who can meet that need. Friends, you are supposed to feel undone. You are supposed to feel like you just can't keep it together. You are supposed to feel like you're getting worse. We think our neediness disqualifies us from his love when in reality it is our neediness that attracts him to us. Think about Paul the apostle. When Paul just becomes an apostle after this life of slaying Christians, this life of persecuting the church, and he finally becomes a Christian, he has enough humility to say, okay, listen, I am the least of the apostles. Like there's the 12 and then there's lucky 13 over here like... I'm, I'm not that good a guy. And then halfway through his life in one of Paul's letters, he says, I'm the least of the saints. Meaning from when he was killing Christians to the 13th on the team, and now after doing ministry and life for a while following Jesus, he's the worst of all the Christians. He's the least of the saints. And then in his deathbed letters to Timothy, at the end of his life, having killed Christians, having begun to follow Jesus, the 13th apostle, sort of, and then now he's the least of Christians. At the end of his life, do you remember what he calls himself? The chief of sinners. I'm the worst one that's ever been. I'm the chief of sinners. Why is that? Is it because he's picking up worse and worse habits as he goes along? No. It's because the closer you get to Jesus, envision a spotlight. The closer you get to the spotlight, you're going to see all the more flaws and cracks. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more need you're going to feel, the more ways that you feel. You don't just have some things that are wrong with you that Jesus will put to to death eventually. That even your best things aren't that great. You start to grow in this sense of how flawed and riddled with weakness that you actually are. And that sense of neediness, here's the thing, that's supposed to help you. It's supposed to help you. We look at that sense of neediness and think we either have to hide it and not tell anybody about it, or we need to perform and make it go away, but we misunderstand what that neediness was meant to do, and it's supposed to fuel us in dependence upon God. Fuel us. So first we're desperate and then we're dependent. Look with me in verse 47 through 49. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. Can you imagine the dependence and the desperation of this man? All his life, at least all the life that we know of, is in darkness, total darkness. All he does is hear all the time. He can't see anything. And he hears a crowd and he hears a murmur. 
And then he hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth that's coming his way, and he starts to cry out. He's dependent. This is his one shot to take it, and he's going to take his shot. He's going to say, if I ever wanted a different life, this is it. This is the guy that can help me. I am dependent upon him. He takes his need and demands that it makes its way to Jesus. They articulate their need to the right person. So desperation is having an awareness of how needy you are, and dependence is taking that need to the right person. That's why he's demonstrating that he actually has more sight than the crowd, because he knows the one that can help him, and he won't be denied. Do you want to know what it's like to have dependence? Have you ever been on a road trip with a toddler in the car? They know exactly what it's like to experience a need, and they are masters of communicating that need constantly and incessantly. May I have a snack? Can you unwrap this snack? May I have another snack? Can we listen to that song again? Can you put in a new movie? I'm thirsty. May I have another snack? Will you put my shoes, take my shoes off? Will you help me put my shoes back on? They are masters at feeling need and immediately taking it to the right person. That's what God has in mind for us. That in your sin neediness and in your suffering neediness, you will take that neediness and get faster at feeling the need and taking it to Jesus. Feeling the need and taking it to Jesus. But we somehow get it into our heads. The longer we're Christians, the more mature we are as Christians, we have less need and we don't need to take it to Jesus because we can sort it ourselves. That's why Jesus says you have to have faith like little children. I have a need and I can't meet this on my own. I know who can. Not, I don't have that many needs and I bet I can sort it myself. That's why Paul Miller says, if you're not praying... You're quietly confessing that time or effort or money will solve this problem. Time or effort or money will solve this problem. Otherwise, you're in need. It's a sign of Christian maturity, not weakness to cry out your need to Jesus and others. It's a sign of Christian maturity, not weakness to cry out your need to Jesus and others. But what happens is we have need, can't do anything about it. So we numb that need or we try and outperform that need. Don't go numb. Learn to live in this crying out. Jesus is not disgusted by your neediness, even over your own sin. Jesus is not disgusted by neediness even over your own sin. He's engaged by it. He's engaged by it. What read this fabulous book, I think it's called Extravagant Grace by Barbara Duguid. And she's talking about her exploration of the Puritans and their understanding of how grace and change worked. She's reading and explaining one guy, and she basically says if the Holy Spirit's primary job is to get you to stop sinning, the Holy Spirit's not very good at his job. And you're like, whoa. 
she said, what if the Holy Spirit's primary job is to get you to feel your need of Jesus? And sometimes, sometimes, that means even allowing a sin to continue in your life because it's the thing that keeps you running back to Jesus. It's a very, very powerful thought. The Holy Spirit is trying to foster in you dependence. Yes, holiness will come in measure, in time, slowly, and with many setbacks. But the dependence will be there. Jesus is on the way to the cross. Did you see that? The very next story, Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus and then the triumphal entry. He is on the way to do the most important thing in the history of mankind. He's on the way to the cross, and yet he stopped because of a lost cause. He stops because Bartimaeus is saying, Lord, have mercy, have mercy. Some of you are sitting there thinking, but you don't understand how bad I am how blind I am, how messed up I am. You don't know the things that I've done in the dark. How ugly my heart is, how hopeless my life is. Friends, that is exactly who catches Jesus' attention. Think about the arrogant disciples. He's so patient and gentle with them. Think about the woman from the streets or the woman by the well. She's so gentle and faithful to linger with them. Think about the prodigal son. If Jesus is famous for anything, it's being quick to rescue lost causes. It's need that moves the heart of God. Move towards your need. He'll be waiting for you there. If you're a Huffman kid and you hear, you're supposed to come running. When Jesus hears, have mercy on me, he comes running. It's his mercy. It's his merit. Knox and I were in an argument. Knox is my oldest son, my 13-year-old, and he and I were in an argument this past week, and both were harsh with one another. And then he came and found me, and he started to apologize and said, Dad, I'm sorry for And he stopped himself, and he said, I'm sorry that I say I'm sorry a lot. It must not mean anything anymore that I say I'm sorry, because I just keep doing the same things. And I said, Knox, that's all you have. That's all I have. And the fact that you say, keep saying sorry a lot means that you're leaning against your sin and you're still trying. So don't apologize to me for saying sorry a lot. You're doing the right thing. We have that sense like Knox that if we've said sorry if too many times, then God will just somehow think they don't mean it. I can't have mercy on them. They don't mean it. But he is an expert at understanding that when you say sorry, you're saying, I can't do it on my own. And he goes, yes, that's right. You saying sorry is actually admitting what he is trying to get you to admit, that you need help like Knox does, like I do, like this blind beggar does. And he knows he needs help, and he takes his shot. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, says this about the disciples. Remember, they push away the children. They let the rich young ruler through. Then they argue about which one's the greatest and who's going to be the the right and the left in heaven. And then a blind man's coming and they try and keep him out of the way. And he says this, How can you be a disciple of Jesus and be a barrier 
of, for those who want to meet Jesus? How can you be a disciple of Jesus and still be a barrier in the way of those who want to meet Jesus? And friends, as a young church, let this never be true of us. We don't want to say Jesus is for the neat, Jesus is for the wealthy, Jesus is for the ones who have it together. So stay out there. We will not be a barrier here. Don't let this church be a barrier. We want to be a channel that helps people who are far off, who wouldn't dare think they could get grace, that they can come here and they can find it here. We won't be a barrier. We will not keep the bad candidates away from Jesus. Those are the ones he's after. Alistair Begg also said this, you'll never know Jesus as a reality until you know him as a necessity. You'll never know Jesus as a reality until you know him, until you know him as a necessity. What that means is he'll never mean anything to you until you need him. Until you need him. We want to be those that are calling in people, not telling them to be quiet. There's a song we sing in the hymns that says, all the fitness he requires, all the fitness, all the readiness, all, all that you need to do to stand ready for grace, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And even that, this he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. What he's saying is, know your need. You are desperate and you're dependent. Take your need to the right person and watch what that person will do. We'll see the restoration. Look here in verse 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. We were talking about it this week. It seems when we tell these stories like there's like 15 people standing around. These are crowds of people ready for the Passover. Thousands of people ready for the Passover, winding their way to Jerusalem. And in fact, he's so far away, Jesus has to say, go get him. Go call him. Go get him. Just appreciate the significance of this. This man is listening to this, this roar, this roar of a crowd getting louder and people talking, people shouting out, people saying hello. And all of a sudden, it makes, he hears that Jesus is going to be there and he says, this is my one shot. I've heard about this Jesus of Nazareth, this son of David. I've heard about it. This is my shot. And he starts screaming and he's sort of making a scene. And remember, he's not close enough to Jesus for Jesus to be like, hey, dude, what did you want? He says, go get him. So with all of these people, he's making a scene and the disciples are like, hey man, enough, be quiet. And this guy says, no, this is my moment. This is, I'm needy, I am desperate. Jesus, son of mercy, he starts yelling. Have... And the disciples want to tell him to be quiet and Jesus says, stops on his way to Jerusalem and says, go get him. Go get that one. 
go get that one. Why? Why in all of the noisiness and all of the crowd and all the importance on the way to the cross does Jesus stop because it's that family whistle? Somebody said, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. Sammy mentioned this week how this has been used, that Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. It's been used in prayers and in songs throughout church history. Monks sometimes would sit by themselves and hum it to themselves literally all day. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Why? Because it's this family whistle. It's this idea that when God hears Lord have mercy, it is the direct pathway into the heart of God. I have need and I know that you can meet it. And God goes, yes, yes. And it takes him off his path towards the cross, even though he's a lost cause, because he's a lost cause, because he says, Lord, have mercy. Some of you may be longing for more closeness with God, but the, the answer to your problem isn't, isn't more effort. Don't try harder. The blind man doesn't have to be grateful for being given sight. When you realize how desperate you are and then notice how restored you are, the intimacy grows and grows. Did you see that? When you realize how messy you are and how restored you are, the intimacy and the gratitude grows and grows. That's why we have you confess your sin. It's not to bum you out. You should hunger for confession, long for confession, because what you're saying is you peel back another chapter and say, I hadn't even gotten to these sins yet, and he loved me still. Even sins I'm, I won't get to until my last day, he's loved me through them. And each time you get to confess them, here's the need, and here was your provision of Jesus on the cross. It deepens your gratitude, it deepens your intimacy to see your need and see it meet, your need met in Christ. And I think Mark is trying to point this out to us right here before Jesus walks into his final week. Look at this. This is so cool. Okay, so in 51, he says, And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? If I flip back one page, 15 verses, James and John, Jesus' besties with Peter, come to him and they're like, hey, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Mark has, within 15 verses, Jesus asks verbatim the same question. Now, flipping forward to 51, James and John would have been following closely along with Jesus. They would have been the, not just in the 12, but in the three. And so I imagine, this is sanctified imagination, but I imagine, not that sanctified, but sanctified enough. I imagine Jesus is there, and of course, James, John, and Peter hugged up right next to him, and he walks over, and James and John are still ringing in their ears how they embarrass themselves by asking for something. And I imagine Jesus looks at them and then looks at him, blind Bartimaeus, and says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I want to see. You see, when you ask Jesus for notoriety or for fame or for prominence, he kindly and casually ignores you. But the same question answered as, I want mercy, and he will put off 
the march to the cross for a moment just to answer your question says, have mercy. I want mercy. I, I need help. The hunger for prominence he ignores, but the request for help, he slows down and listens intently and then meets the need. And he wants them, this crowd of people around, right before he goes, you know where he's going. He wants them to see what kind of request Jesus answers, what kind of request Jesus listens to and engages. And it's always the request for mercy. Sometimes we hear these stories and it just kind of loses their impact. It seems so common. Oh, here's this person, they can walk now. Oh, here, this person, they can see now. Oh, here, this, that, these hungry people, they've been fed. It seems so common, but not to the blind man. Everything was different from then on out for the blind man. Can you imagine that guy, Bartimaeus, never shut up about this. Do you remember the day I met Jesus? Let me tell you about the day I met Jesus. Let me tell you about the one who gave me back my sight. That day, everything changed. So much to the fact, did you see it in the last verse? He recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I've got a new life now, and I'm sticking with this one. In your new life, are you sticking with Jesus? In your new life, do you want to tell everybody about how everything is different now? They're in Jerusalem with one week left. The disciples are asking for good seats in heaven. And within one week, the disciples will disappear into the dark. Jesus is always quick to listen to the helpless and the needy who bring it to him and quick to ignore those looking to serve themselves. Be desperate, know your need, and be dependent. Be that toddler. Feel a need, take it to Jesus. Feel a need, take it to Jesus. It's maturity to take as much need as possible, as quickly as possible to Christ. It's immaturity to think, I don't have that much need and I can work this out on my own. When Aaron was in college, my wife Aaron, when she was in college, she got a job. And her job was to drive. She was driving women who had been in prison, except now they were in a halfway house. And she was driving them from their halfway house to their jobs and picking them up at the end of their shifts and driving them back to the halfway house. I don't know how one, a college girl gets that as her job, but that's what she would do. She said she was sitting with one woman, driving her in her old 92 Honda Accord, and she said this woman could not stop talking about Jesus. And she said, you don't understand, Aaron. I was hooking, and I was using, and then I would hook some more so that I could get my hands on more drugs. And then she said, out of nowhere, Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. And I know he wants to save more people too. And when I heard that story and how she was literally shouting with joy in the Honda Accord, I was like, all right. 
Yeah, of course Jesus saved you. Do you have to make such a big deal about it? Because she knew how desperate she was. She knew how dependent she was on the grace of God and she couldn't stop talking about it. And it offended my delicate sensibilities because I don't think I'm not that I don't think I'm that needy. So it doesn't mean that much to me. If you want it to mean more to you, don't try harder. Linger in your desperation and in your dependence and just how much Jesus saved you. And I promise you, friends, that will fuel gratitude. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. It's our family whistle. We can't keep up. We can't stop our bad habits. We can't keep up with our good habits. We can't turn things around. And even our good stuff is muddled with bad intentions. But Christ. But Christ marched to Jerusalem anyway. We thank you for your mercy. Teach us to love calling for mercy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. But Christ. But Christ marched to Jerusalem anyway. We thank you for your mercy. Teach us to love calling for mercy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.